So I want to read the passage that we're going to be looking at here this morning. So we have been in a series in the book of First Peter. So if you guys would like, why don't you open your Bibles to the book of First Peter chapter 2 is where we're at. Um, but I want to kind of set a little bit of a context, and then I'm going to have you all stand, and then I want to read it. So if you guys don't have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hands. We have some ushers that would love to get you a Bible. So... I want you to imagine, imagine living in a community or a culture or a context that is, for the most part, um, does not, in the most minimal sense, understand you, understand your values. For the most part, people look at you and think you're odd, weird, despicable, maybe in some cases, and in the most extreme senses, you are shoved off to the margins. You are being disallowed to carry on your business, whatever it is, you know, little pop-up shop somewhere down in the, you know, the, the, the Roman market, wherever. Um, you're, you're being disallowed to carry on business. Maybe in some other extreme cases, uh, you've had people threaten you, threaten your existence, you or your family Talk about this Jesus character. One more time, you will be facing, you know, Caesar's sword. So from the most minimal all the way to the highest extreme, you you nonetheless find yourself in a place that is, for the most part, not friendly towards you or in some cases straight up hostile towards you. So so imagine that. Imagine that. In some ways, it'll take an imagination to actually engage in that because, again, we live for the most part in a culture that at least values. It's not always perfect. It does not always happen the way it should in our culture, but at least it values it. So when it is out of balance, there are things set in motion to help bring about a counterbalance to that. So, But imagine this is what the early church was facing. So with that in mind, um, I, I want to lead with a question and then read the passage. So imagine here you are, you're part of this community of Jesus people, followers of Jesus, living in this type of climate with some degree of uncertainty. Um, and now you're awaiting um, information from your leaders. So just with that question in mind, what, what would you hope the leaders of your movement would tell you? Just, just hold on to that. Think about that. What would you hope your leaders for you living in that context would say to you? Maybe some of you would want grab a sword, sharpen it, and get ready to rumble. Like some of you are like brawlers and you want to fight. You want to throw down on the mat. We're going to fight for whatever it is that we're hoping to fight for. Others of you are like waiting maybe for that word to say just run run for the wilderness, just escape, flee it all, go create your little, you know, oasis out somewhere in the wilderness and run from it all. Again, think about what would you as a human being hope to hear from your leaders? And with that being said, I want us all to stand right now and I want to listen. Now again, these are not my opinions. These are not my words. These are the words of the apostle Peter who by and for all intents and purposes is a leader in the church. He is an authoritative figure that by way of the Holy Spirit has given us words to listen to and a volition to either choose to say, I'll take it and obey it. It's hard. It's hard obedience or straight up just reject it. So with that being said, hopefully that sets the stage. So I'll stand. I'm going to read First Peter chapter 2 verses 13 through 17 and uh, then we will pray and then we'll get to work at looking at What in the world is Peter suggesting? So again, listen to what he says. Here you are, follow of Jesus, receiving, reading these words in an oppressive context. Your life 
is threatened, Peter says these. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And this is the word of God. I'm going to pray. Jesus. I'm confident that these words right here are not the words that some of us want to hear. And it's okay for us to be honest with that. Because we thank you, God. You're, you're bigger than our emotions, our feelings, our angst, our anger, our confusion. You're, you're bigger than all of that. Because you're God over all things. And so, God, for us, we come to you just with questions and concerns and anxieties and, in some cases, trauma and frustration and pain and all of this. God, we bring all of these things to you, and we just lay them at your feet. We ask you, Father, that you would help us to walk in a way, God, that is faithful to these words of instruction. That were given to us by way of the Holy Spirit as you led Peter to write. So help us now, God, to just humble ourselves before you and allow you to do the reformatting of our hearts that need to happen. We pray these things in Jesus' name. We all said, Amen. So go ahead, grab a seat. Again, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie that this is a hard this can be a hard statement. Because like I said, for, for many of us, we may have certain hopes that our leaders would, would say to us that, that are not this. But this is what we have. And as being a follower of Jesus, it's kind of like one of those things where there are occasions where we have to take the text as hard, as painful, as difficult as, as it is, and to allow it to reformat, to reshape, to reconstruct our expectations around them. And not us shape it around our presuppositions and desires. Uh, that, I mean, bottom, bottom line, guys, that, that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. There will come times that Jesus will say things to you that will straight up frustrate you, confuse you, make you angry in some cases. That, this is part of the game, part of the reality. And it sometimes takes a lifetime to work through some of those challenges and difficulties. To say, on the one hand, and this is where the tension oftentimes Christians find themselves living. On the one hand, or you might want to describe it as like a paradox. Where on the one hand, we want to be, live faithfully to God. But on the other hand, we find ourselves in real life, feet on the ground, circumstances, crisis, challenges, hardships. That we're, we're having to try to figure out how to work these, these, these what seem to be paradoxical statements together. And that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. For some of us, again, I think we, we have been sold this idea that following Jesus is going to be easy. And if anything, following Jesus is going to make our lives easier. Now, I don't know how or why we tend to think that. It's totally a false form of, 
I might even just call it like an American version of Christianity. It's a false form of Christianity, or at least at least an incomplete form of Christianity. One that simply does not harmonize or resonate with what we see finding here in the Bible. Because again, these followers of Jesus living first century, we know some of the history of this. We know, based upon historical backdrop, that it's very likely that the emperor that was in control at that time was a guy by the name of Nero. If you know anything about Roman history, you probably have at least heard of that guy. And he's a horrible human being. Like, he was not sane, like, literally crazy running the show. And it got so bad at some points. I mean, and if you're familiar with the, the history of it, there were occasions where he would actually put human bodies, Christians, in some cases even Jews, onto poles that ran through their body. And he, and again, I realize we got children here, so I'm going to be PG as best as I can. But the reality is, and he would torch them, set them alight. All right, so I'm, I'm trying to use code language so that mom and dad, you don't get questions asked later. Set them alight, all right? And, and this, is, this is his way of basically saying, I'm going to make those that have caused problems in my kingdom suffer. These are the Christians to whom Peter's writing. And Peter says, be subject to every human institution. So what I want to do this morning is I really want to wrestle with this. Again, like I said, this whole concept that Peter seems to be emphasizing is what I've described as a revolution of goodness. Now, again, like I said, maybe some of us would have desired for Peter's words to say, you know, take out a stone and sharpen your sword, get ready to fight, get ready to brawl. We are going to create a militia. We're going to go out strike at night. We're going to have Sicarios with daggers in hand, do what they can. We're going to overcome and we're going to overthrow Roman power and establish the kingdom of God once and for all. That's the exact opposite of what Peter instructed. So instead, what he says, do good. Live in such a way that your acts, if, if anybody calls you aside and challenges your morality or your actions, that they would have to at least step back and think, I don't get it. They claim to follow Jesus, and yet they're, they're really good. They're doing good. They're helping the poor. They're taking care of those that have been broken or ruined or those that are in the streets, maybe suffering from, you know, incurable skin diseases or whatever. And they're praying for them. They're loving them. They're bringing food and delivering. They're creating welfare systems that we don't even have the means and the ability to establish. They're doing good. They can't peg you down as insurrectionists. They can't peg you down as evildoers. Instead, if anything, they're going to look at you and say, I don't get these people because they, they claim to not worship Caesar like everybody else does. But they don't seem to be out to overthrow Caesar's government either. We, we don't know how to define these people. It's almost like they're doing good. That's what Peter says. Live in such a way. So that's why I describe this. It's kind of like a revolution of goodness or goodness warriors or if you want more benign form to create, to live as people that create a culture of goodness. If, if you want to know how a Christian should act, that, that's it right there, by the way. Goodness, people. So what I want to do is we begin to look at this. Peter anchors the actions that we're called to 
ultimately in the identity of who we are. So this, again, goes back uh, a couple weeks ago where we looked at Peter says, but you guys are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, called by God. Uh, In other words, you have a unique identity that on the one hand, on a vertical level, you are seen and loved and recognized, adopted by God. You have a place in God's kingdom. But on a horizontal level, you also belong to an earthly government called, called Rome. And you have to figure out how to navigate, on the one hand, uh, being loyal to God and his kingdom at some points will call you to be disloyal to Caesar's kingdom. And so there's a a challenge here. So what I want to do is, over the next couple weeks at least, I want to take a look at, again, due to time, a variety of ideas that are going to rise up in the text. So next slide, I'll just kind of go through each one of these. One by one, because there's, uh, so first of all, this is it. We're looking at the idea of being citizens. The weeks to come, we're going to look at the idea of being servants. But next slide, if we can go to that one. Um, here's six different ways in which I think Peter is inviting us or urging us, he's the language that he uses, to practice goodness. Here's what he says. Goodness looks ultimately like subjection to every human institution for the Lord's sake. Secondly, it looks like taking sin seriously. Thirdly, it looks like acting on the freedom that God gives us to do good. Fourthly, it looks like honoring everyone. Fifthly, it looks like loving the church or loving the brotherhood is the way he describes this. Sixthly, it looks like fearing God. We're not going to get to all of those today. Take a deep breath. What I want to look at right now is look at number one, subjection to every human institution. We'll see how far we get through this list, all right? So with that being said, I want to really just look at each one of these one by one. First of all, beginning with this subjection to every human institution for the Lord's sake. Before we even jump into this, I want to at least address maybe a question that probably immediately was sparked by some of you. And it's what I like to think of as these exceptions or these exception clauses. And what I mean by that is I think if any one of us, like, you know, good red-blooded Americans, we oftentimes think, okay, great, government, but what about those times where we have to rebel, right? We're on the 4th of July, and I don't think there's any irony here. I mean, 4th of July was born out of rebellion, all right? It was born out of a basic way of saying we're going to stand as a country against the tyranny of the British, and we're going to basically establish our own governmental system out of rebellion, out of a bloody rebellion, I might add, this, is, this country was formed. But that being said, uh, I think there's a tendency for us as Christians immediately to jump to those exception clauses. When is it acceptable for us to rebel or reject or to engage in civil disobedience or to oppose government? And again, I think all those are valid questions, and they need to be taken in light. And again, a lot of ink has been spilled over the subject matter, and podcasts have been done, and audiobooks have been created, and so on and so forth. You get the idea. Um, and there's no way, shape, or form I'm going to do this justice in the limited time frame that we have here. So what I want to try to do is I want to just read a brief little uh, snippet from a commentary written by a guy named David Stern. He's a Jewish uh, Christian who's also written commentaries. And here's what he said. Should believers obey the wicked laws of an evil government like the Nazis, the communists, or totalitarian regimes? No, because these rule, because uh, this rule does not stand by itself in Scripture. It must also be read in light of passages like First or like the Book of Acts, chapter five, verse twenty-nine. This is actually where Peter, Peter himself, was part of this group that says we must obey God rather than men. So even Peter, who's writing this instruction to us right now, at one point engaged in some form of civil, civil disobedience. So again, I'm trying to look at some of these exception clauses. And then he goes on to say, when the will of the state and the will of God conflict, the early Christians confuse, 
or sorry, refused to offer incense to statues of the Roman emperor because such idolatry would have been disobedience to God. They paid with their lives. I'm going to read the following in just a moment, but just pause and think about this. Early Christians, we know based upon historical claims that there were practices throughout the Roman kingdom. One thing you need to understand is that Roman governors or Roman leaders or the Caesars were oftentimes viewed as deity. They were the sort of the embodiment of the gods, not, not ruling off of Olympus or wherever it was that they ruled, but ruling from Rome, the center stage. And so in order to emphasize or to recognize the godlike status of Rome, uh, they would burn incense. So imagine yourself being someone that, you know, let's say, I don't know, you sold beets, whatever. All right, so you go and set up shop. As you go into the market to set up shop to sell your beets or whatever it is that you're going to make, uh, you would basically be accept, expected to offer incense to Caesar. Is a way of you acknowledging Caesar's Lord, Caesar's Lord overall. And, but Christians were basically saying, we're not going to do that because Caesar's not Lord overall. Yahweh's Lord overall. And so for us to offer incense to Caesar it would be a conflict with the Lordship of Jesus. In fact, a lot of Bible scholars and historians actually believe that the whole phrase, Jesus is Lord, was not only a declarative statement, Jesus is Lord, but also a political pushback. To none other than the dude that sat on some, you know, velvety couch in the center of the Roman Empire. It was another way of basically saying, Jesus is Lord overall, Caesar's not. That'll get you into trouble, by the way. And it did. It got Christians into trouble. By the second, third centuries, Christians were actually being brutally uh, killed. Thrown to the lions for sport. It was, it was a way of basically saying... We will show those who will stand as insurrectionists against the lordship of Caesar who ultimately has the power. And of course Caesar's got the power. It's his, it's his kingdom. And he demonstrated that power. But Christians were refusing to basically say, we, we won't say Caesar's Lord, because he's not. That would go against our conscience. So there were occasions where Christians would stand up and do this. Now, again, this is what this uh, David Stern is going on to say. So I'll read the very next slide. He goes on to say, Richard Warmbrandt, uh, who was a Jewish believer in Jesus, who was imprisoned and tortured for his faith for 14 years in communist Romania, uh, which, by the way, if you've never heard of Richard Warmbrandt, I would highly recommend uh, researching him, Googling him, searching out his name. He's got a book called Tortured for Christ. Highly recommend checking him out. He's like an amazing human being. And he goes on to say that uh, he says an evil government should be rendered a hard kick in the pants. But he adds the officials of that government should be loved since they're created in God's image. The Messiah loves them and we are to imitate the Messiah. So, so hopefully by now what you're beginning to see are paradoxes. What I mean by that is on the one hand, it's not this hard line. They abused us. We will abuse them approach. Nor is it, they abused us, and we're just going to, like, lay down and let them abuse us. It's different. On, on the one hand, there's a, there's a backbone to the early church. There are teeth. But they're not out to simply devour and bite and chew and destroy. It's to live out a goodness lifestyle. It's totally different. Then oftentimes how we see portrayed in these binaries in our world today. You're either a pacifist and you let them and the state just rule over you and take advantage of you. Or you're an insurrectionist and you're out to shed blood. And Peter's saying oh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a different way to live. 
It's different. We don't have to necessarily absorb and allow every evil that's done by the government and submit to that. But at the same time, our aim is to do good, even in a culture of evil and brokenness. So I think the big idea, next slide, that kind of comes to the surface for us here is faithfulness to Jesus looks like goodness portrayed as a faithful citizen. And that seems to be the idea. And this is opposite to becoming revolutionaries, militiamen, women, violent street thugs, or destructive rioters. The aim seems to be entirely different. Doing good in a culture that may or may not be always doing good. Now, again, um, as we begin to kind of shape our thinking about this, I want to look at the next idea. Again, some of us might have these objections. Maybe even hearing me right now, you might even have these objections. Well, this idea of being weak or spineless or toothless, or here's one I've read even recently. We're called to be lions, not lambs right now. Okay, let's, let's play that out. Take your pick. How, how was Jesus when he was being arrested? Lion-like? Was he out to bite and devour? Or was, was he kind of lamb-like? Again, we want to pigeonhole this. We want to figure this out. And here's my thing. Is that I, just, I want to be really clear about this. Is that if there is a sense where it sounds like there's a weakness that's being put forth here, your, your problem's not with me. It's with the text. I just want to be really clear about that. And not just the text, not just the instruction of Peter, but also the action or the exemplary, the, example, the example of Jesus himself. That Jesus portrayed lamb-like qualities in the face of a brutalizing world militaristic superpower. But we knew the true identity of him. Yes, he was lamb-like, but he truly is the lion. So that's the paradox. On the one hand, he is all-powerful. He has all might. In fact, the word that gets used to describe Jesus is he's meek. You know what meekness is, right? Sometimes people think meekness is weakness. Meekness is not meekness. That's, that's, that's false. Meekness means power under constraint. Think of somebody or something that is extraordinarily powerful and mighty, yet not walking around with bravado and flex and ego, but just controlled. But at any moment, you know that if that person were to flare up and use and exercise their control, everyone's dead. Jesus is meek. He truly was a lion. But there are occasions where Jesus act lamb-like. And I'm, I'm just being really honest with you. For us to be faithful as followers of Jesus in this current culture and climate requires us to live according to a wisdom that's beyond conventional wisdom, that learns how to navigate and discern the difference between this and to carefully live it out. Again, our aim, our agenda is goodness. A revolution of goodness. All right, next one. I want to jump into the next one. We'll see how far we get. So number one, we see that goodness looks like subjection. Oh, let, me, let me just say this one final thing. Um, I, I also recognize that the very word subjection might cause some of you to break out in hives. Don't break out in hives because the word subjection um, might be a strong term. Um, but I, I think we, uh, in the original Greek that's used here, 
um, shouldn't be overly like concerned about it because the word subjection just means to submit. Give our minds and our hearts and our thoughts over to something. Um, it's, it's a word that gets used quite a bit within the New Testament. Um, and it's, it has benign forms, which is just kind of like giving your attention, giving your thoughts to something. And then aggressive forms, which is just like enslavement. Um, obviously, he's not talking about be a slave to Caesar. But he is saying be subject. Be subject. Uh, so I, I was trying to think about what would be a good way to identify various forms of, that, of subjection that we as human beings in our culture engage in. So here's, I'll, I'll show you the slide. Um, that, that's subjection. That's subjection. Subjection to a screen. Most of us are subjected to a screen often. Some of us way more than we should. And you might even say you have an, an, an addiction to your screen. And, and there's help for you, and God wants to maybe help you with that. Um, but again, I, I, what, all I'm trying to say is the idea of subjection should not be something that should throw us into overdrive and like freak out like mode of like, oh my gosh, the Bible's talking about subjection. No, no, we, we do this every day. It's part of our life. It's part of how we operate as human beings. But um, again, there are bad forms, and there are forms that are just part of life that we find ourselves engaging in. So with that being said, I want to jump into the very next thing as we begin to take a look at the second idea that I think kind of rises in terms of what does goodness look like. And this is the second phrase which I want to focus on is the idea of taking sin seriously. And I'm going to see how far we get through this. So number one, I'm going to read the little passage here, verses uh, 13b to verse 14. He says, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors that are sent to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So I think it's first of all important to note, like what is the purpose of government? Like what's the aim of government? Is it just to annoy you, to create stupid laws that you're like, ah, oh, I got a ticket again for driving faster than the speed limit? Whatever. I mean, what, what's the purpose of government? The government really has a twofold purpose, and it's simply this. Number one, to punish evil and then to promote good. Punish evil, promote good. Uh, the way he describes it here uh, in this little passage is to punish those that do evil and to praise those that do good. But that's the main big idea that government is really intended to create. Now, again, there's occasions where government gets this right. They get it right. There's occasions where justice actually happens, and we stand back and we applaud. We're like, yes, finally, something, a ruling gets passed down where that's good. We all applaud that. We all acknowledge and recognize that. And then there's other occasions where, you know, half the population is kind of left scratching his head, feeling like an injustice was done. In other words, what happens if you get a government that basically uh, promotes evil and punishes good? That's really bad. Like, that's not good. And that makes it really tough to live in a government like that. And, again, it's one of the reasons why I think— Peter and Paul and some of the other New Testament writers urge us to pray for our governmental leaders. Not to go out and burn down targets, but to pray. Not to be condescending in a sense, but to show kindness and goodness in our culture. In areas where things need to be addressed, we address it. We don't shy away, we don't pull away, but we use the power, whatever it is that we have, in ways that promote good. And I'm not going to sit here and act as if this is an easy thing to do, because it's not. But what I am trying to suggest is that there is a standard that we're called to as followers of Jesus. In other words, we, we're not entirely in the dark as to how we should act. At least, I should say, as long as we are honest with the text in the instruction that St. Peter had given us, and as long as we see the authoritative nature of this, and we allow it to inform us. Some of you might say, well, what if, what if we choose to disregard what Peter said? Well, then you're on your own. You're, you're in a place, in a state called free fall. 
good luck in trying to figure out the most popular morality du jour of the cultural moment we're in. Because it'll shape. It'll shift. It'll mutate. And what's called good today, tomorrow might be called evil. And what's evil called, called evil today might be called good tomorrow. Or we can anchor ourselves into the teachings of Jesus and recognize that the whole culture is consistently on a landslide, consistently shaping, consistently mutating, consistently in states and stages where it's occasionally good and then states and stages where occasionally it's bad. And yet the church is called to be anchored into another kingdom outside of this kingdom to live and bear testimony to the goodness of God. So that being said, I'm not even going to bother trying to get into the next one. You're welcome, because it's just going to be too long, and I'm just going to call it quits here right now. Is that cool? I could teach for another hour. Is that... You know what? I'm going to teach for another hour. I'm just kidding. I'm going to, I'm going to finish up. In fact, I'm going to have Jonah come on up, and uh, what we're going to do is we're going to finish right now just with uh, singing and then partaking of communion, because if anything, what I want for us to go to before we head out and go do whatever it is that we're going to do, you know, eat hot dogs, play lawn games, make pie, eat pie, whatever it is that we want to do, go swimming. I, I want for us to first and foremost recognize that as followers of Jesus, we have a freedom that has been given to us. And again, I'll just, I'll, I'll, here, I'll do this. I'll, get, I'll do this. This is free. So check this out. I want to read this to you again. Check it out. Go back in your Bibles, open up and read this. Verse 15 and 16. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put the silence to ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free. Pause. Again, here you are, Christian. You might even be tempted to think, I'm not free in this culture. First century, okay? You might even in this culture. First century. I'm not free to go into the marketplace. They're attacking me. They're shoving me off to the margins. They're forcing me to offer incense to Caesar. I don't want to offer incense to Caesar. They're threatening to drive me out of town. And what Peter says should shock you. Listen to it again. Live as people who are free. Which raises a question. Where does freedom come from? Caesar? Apparently not. Popular opinion? Doesn't seem like it. Local magistrates? No. Peter's saying... It's possible to live as an oppressed human being in a culture that is actually hostile towards you and yet still live free. Brothers and sisters, this should utterly thrill you, especially, especially if you are somebody that has been subjected to marginalization, being shoved off to the sides, being forgotten, not being given your share, your fair share of the pie. Rather than resorting to grievance and party politics and violent protests, you can re-anchor yourself into a freedom that is guaranteed to you. Even in a culture that's not going to give it to you. How? Well, Peter says repeatedly, Jesus, who's the one free agent in the entire universe, gave up his freedom. You say, when did he do that? 
is bound to the cross. Why? For you. Because he loves you. And in him taking upon those restrictions, those limitations, that enslavement, if I can even use that word, means you've been given freedom. Even in the midst of a culture that might be trying to take those freedoms away. This is why I would suggest if you are a Christian, this is the most amazing news in the world. Because nothing, nothing can take it away from you. If you're not a Christian here today, I can't think of any better reason why at this point right now to say, what am I doing with my life? What hope am I trying to anchor myself into for you to just simply, maybe even at this moment, come to the end of yourself and say, I need this freedom. You don't need to keep trying to carve it out for yourself. You don't need to keep trying to stake your claim and aggressively take and grab and live with the scarcity, the mindset that's not there. You got to grab it. You got to fight it. You got to have a degree of anxiety that defines you. No, there's a there's another way that Jesus is saying, "Come to me, all you who are weary. You're exhausted. You're tired. You're filled with anxiety. Come to me and find rest." This is such good news that if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. My invitation to you would be to just confess your sins and brokenness and failures and all of these broken bits and pieces of your life. Lay them at his feet. He's the one that will put you back together again and bring healing. He's the one that will say, live as people who are free. It's my gift to you, freedom. Go do good. Go show kindness. Because I've done good in showing kindness to you.